Hype Beast Radio, I'm Jeff Staple, and this is The Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. Hey everyone, it's Jeff Staple. And I'm battling a bit of a cold this week, so please excuse this frog that is living inside of my throat. But alas, the show must go on. Please send chicken soup if you can. So every week on the podcast, I try and bring on guests that illustrate different aspects of business and how they use creativity, financial acumen, and marketing to create what we generally categorize as hype. You could argue that street culture is where the notion of hype was born. So sometimes I like to bring on guests that are at the true epicenter of the streetwear scene. And my guests this week are literally ground zero architects of the culture. They really require no introduction. If you don't know their names, you should know their brand. And if you don't know their brand, you probably know some of the collaborative projects that they've touched and felt the impact that they've made in today's industry. What started out as a tiny shop in the Lower East Side of New York City has become one of the key building blocks to today's sneaker and streetwear world. In a time when streetwear, or whatever term you want to use at this point, has become pretty much mainstream, many like Virgil Abloh and Interview Magazine point back to the A-Life crew as pioneers and an institution. And there's simply no debating that anymore. So get ready to hear how it all began and the many pitfalls and lessons that they faced and how they were able to take all of that experience to refocus and pivot for the future. So everyone, please welcome Rob Jest and Trey Hill from the one and only A-Life. All right, so let's begin. Uh, who do we have in the studio? Or actually, I'm in your studio today. So who do we have uh, in, the, in the house right now? You have Rob, A-Life, Rob Jest, Rob... 1970. <laughs> and Trey Hill, A-Life. Nice, the A-Life crew. All right, cool. This is going to be a good one because you guys go back. And are we going to go back today? Yeah, we're going to go back to the beginning. Okay. Let's do it. Dope. All right, so let's start, let's start at the beginning. Um, and I, I definitely want to go through some of the different chapters. Um, but in the beginning, there were four, correct? Correct. Okay. This, I feel like you're going to test my knowledge of A Life <laughs> trivia. For right. sure. All right. You want to. Rob um, interviewing you. Yeah, I know. Yeah. This is. Like, <laughs> you ready? So, Rob, you want to start with just like who the four tri- like the, the originators are of A Life? Yeah. So, 98, I think, we kind of um, came to fruition that we were going to do something other than working uh, where we worked together, which was uh, Sportswear International Magazine. And it was myself. It was Arno Delacole. It was Tony Arcabascio. And at the time, Arno was married to uh, Tammy, Uptown Tammy. So it was um, at this job that we met each other. And uh, we had been in different uh, 
you know, different um, sec- sectors of the magazine. Mm-hmm. Tony and myself were in the art department. Uh, Arno was editorial um, covering this realm, you know, fashion, fashion. Yeah. stores, you know, independent people, brands. So we, you know, we came from this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, myself and Tony were in the, you know, underneath um, pretty good people that had, had been in the game for a long time. One was a, a classically uh, trained French art director by the name of Guillaume Bruneau, who used to do um, Elle magazine and these high, you know, higher luxury fashion uh, magazines. Mm-hmm. And then um, his assistant was Young Kim, which we were just talking about before, who went on to do a lot of... Um, wide you know widen kennedy and 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 uh you know more culturally relevant you know stuff to us but that was um my initial training in how to use a computer when i first went to that job i didn't know how to turn on a computer basically (laughs) and that was the beginning i mean we were doing cut and paste with you know exacto knives and putting magazine together by yeah, hand, yeah. basically. Clear tape. And, and so, you know, that was the era that we kind of came up in when you had to have a foot, you know, a photograph. You know, you had to take the hair out or the wrinkles out. You had to bring it to the retoucher and he had to sit there with a paintbrush and retouch the picture, mm-hmm. you know. And then, so that was the era that we kind of came up on. People have no idea that you could have been a graphic designer back then and not know how to use the computer. Like graphic design wasn't equal to computer no it was like a trade that you really learned when you know now the computer allows you to become anything back then you kind of had to have that's it have some kind of knowledge on what you were doing right sportswear international is not like a widely known magazine because it's business to business but it was crazy influential to the whole industry right it's actually funny because I just ran into Cause uh, a couple weeks ago at a block party uh-huh. here. And um, we were the, f- when I was the art director there, I published Cause's first artwork ever. That was the first time that Cause ever, Cause ever put um, his art on paper, like his art in printed magazine. It w- that was the first time it was ever published. And that was when he was really like just. You know, we go back through the graffiti community, mm-hmm. but he was, you know, even back then, it was like evolving the evolution of graffiti. And that was when he was doing the bus stops and the, the phone booths. Yeah. And um, so we gave him, you know, prints that a photographer shot of bullshit, really, mm-hmm. just models, you know, editorial stuff. Yeah. And he took them and he did his thing. Uh-huh. And, and, um, and and when I and that was the first thing he did. You know, we did the cover, and he did like a ten-page story or whatever it was. And um, and when I just saw him, he's like, "Do you know what I have?" And I was like, "No." He's like, "I have the envelope that you tagged up on my name, Cause FC, with all the prints." You know. Um, and so he just sent me the pictures of that shit, and I was like, "Wow, that was that was a blast from the past." Yeah, it'd be great if he could send you the prints too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you heard that, Brian. <laughs> That's dope. And then did you know that I took up the reins as art director after y'all left? No, I didn't. Yes. That's great. Yeah. Me. Wow. Yeah. I worked under Adina. Wow. Yeah. And so like you, you guys just, you programmed just the voice. Back real quick. That's just, great. It was. Did you know that we worked there? Of course. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, you guys set the tone. Okay. Because most business to business magazines just talked like boring stats and like industry shit. 
But Sportswear International actually, you know, they allowed a cause cover to happen, yes. which no other rag would allow. No. You know? So when I came on, it was like I did an article on Bobito. Wow. You know, like so it was, I had to I take had the reins. I had no idea. That's great. Yeah, it's fun. Wow, Good schooling times. me now. You want to talk about going down memory lane? This takes me back. These fellas are the true pioneers, the OGs of what you call streetwear and sneaker culture today. We're talking cause as just a pure graffiti writer and Rob as an art director. Hype didn't even exist. Gallery and museum shows weren't a priority and brand collaborations, they weren't even in the vocabulary yet. This was all about having a true connection to culture before everyone just started using the word, the culture. What seems cool and tapped in today's world was just naturally existing in deep corner pockets of life back in the day. The industry today seems so fleeting. Brands and artists pop up and become the new hot thing, and collaborations seem forced with little to no purpose at all. But don't get me wrong, I enjoy seeing new waves of talent and energy, but it's reassuring to think how far people like Rob and A-Life have come where we are now and the fact that we can still sit down and chop it up after all these years. Rob and the guys were really pioneers. I mean, I remember when I took over art direction for Sportswear International, there was a very high benchmark level that I had to hit and try to exceed. It's what pushed me to create some of the proudest design work I've done in my career. I remember doing layouts and cover shoots and thinking, if those guys did it that way, I need to take it to the next level. It was competitive, but it also pushed me to become better. So even though Rob didn't know it, he helped make me who I am today. Who was the uh, founder? Klaus? The founder, no. Oh, the uh, chairman guy. The, the original, and this is how this came about, the original was a gangster from Throg's Neck in the Bronx named Michael Belomo, who passed away. Yeah. God what? bless. But so... <laughs> Before that um, publishing, you know, before that opportunity happened, my father was like, go talk to a neighborhood friend of mine, mm -hmm. Mikey Belomo, <laughs> and see if he will, if he could use you for anything. And so that was my initial foot in the door was I went to go see Mike Belomo, who was, um, you know, Matt, he was the publisher of the magazine before the Germans, before he sold it to the uh -huh. Germans. And um, so he was like, what do you do? I said, I do art and that's really it. You mm -hmm. know, he's like, do you know how to use a computer? I said, yeah. Meanwhile, I never had touched a computer. <laughs> he's like, okay, come in, you know, a couple of days a week and, and you start doing it. And really that was it. I was there as an intern and I was getting coffee for the art directors and mm -hmm. dropping clothes off and doing all the shit that, yeah. you know, you had to do. And, um, were you friends with Tony already? No. Oh, so you met Tony on the job? I met Tony and Arno and, and Tony, the, the crazy shit is, so I was writing graffiti as a kid and, yeah. and I was always tagging and doing shit and, and whatever. And when I met Tony, Tony ended up there randomly also, but um, when we found out that each other, that we both wrote graffiti mm -hmm. and, and the reason that, and I'm, I'm kind of a dick, I don't talk to people, it takes me a long time to kind of like, you know, break <laughs> into people. Um, but Tony actually did a piece, a memory piece on the Long Island Expressway that I had 
scene growing mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. It was like anytime we would go out to Long Island, there was a piece that said in memory of Mirage. And Mirage was a, an iconic Queens. Uh, he was actually Long Island, but he had Queens. Mm -hmm. And it was, he was actually like iconic um, bomber uh -huh. from, from there. And, and when he passed away, there was this piece that ran forever. It was like, and it was in memory of Mirage. And Tony actually did that with a couple people out there. And that was kind of our bonding. What was Tony's street site? S-I-T-E, K-D-M crew. Oh, okay. So you so, knew who Sight was, but you didn't know who I didn't Tony. know who Sight was, but I knew you he knew, was, yeah. you know, a, a graffiti because I'm so dumb that, like, you know, I didn't realize there was a whole, uh, you know, bunch of different cliques. Like, I didn't know about skateboarding until uh -huh. we started really A-Life, and then I was like, oh, shit, there's a whole crew of right. skate kids because we were always graffiti. Mm -hmm. That was it. Like, narrow-minded, and, you know, that was it. And right. um, so when we came to Manhattan for, for work and started A-Life up and then I really kind of like, you know. Yeah. Okay, so the, the, the guys all met there and Tammy was there too. Tammy was Arno's wife. So right. she was there um, and just came, you know. So basically what happened is- <laughs> Yeah, how did it germinate? So yeah. it germinated, we worked under this art director and the art director was always like, okay guys, I have an opportunity because after sportswear, we would go to work at another studio with him. He was like, I have an idea. I have all these clients. I have, you know, let's take example. I have um, uh, Bic, you know, mm -hmm. Bic. We're going to put a proposal together. Mm -hmm. I want you guys to come up with a proposal mm -hmm. and I'm going to get it and I'm going to get them to do a big advertorial in the magazine. Mm -hmm. And so we used to go after work and we would go to this studio um, which was one of Guillaume's uh, partners, and we would do these, you know, we would do these decks mm -hmm. that were basically pitch decks, pitch yeah. pitches, and and from Levi's to you know Bic to yeah. Revlon to whoever it was, and he was getting all of this work, mm -hmm. and we were like, this is our work, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, know, these he are was, our ideas. He was our doing work, yeah. nothing except selling yes. them. And and basically, um, which is a job. Selling it is a job. One hundred percent. It was his connections mm -hmm. and it was his know-how in the industry. But these are all stepping stones that you learn, you yeah. know. And um, you know, we I was at Sportswear for eight years. Wow. So that was like you know starting from nothing uh -huh. and then learning and you know and this was the heyday of like you know really fashion photographers like you know before the computer era and um, it that kind of taught me really like. Because I had my own, I've always been like artistic and paint and blah, blah, blah. But that kind of taught me a classic, you know, mm -hmm. design, design sense. Yeah. And he was such a fucking hard ass about work mm -hmm. that like, you know, so I, I have that kind of ingrained in me also. So I have this classic aesthetic, yeah. but I ha also have this abstract contemporary shit, mm -hmm. you know. Plus the street shit, yeah. And so um, that was it. You know, basically we used to, Tony, myself, Arno, used to do these pitches and uh, and uh, this guy would sell them. Mm -hmm. And after a while, we're like, fuck this shit. We're like, this is, we could, we should be doing this. And mm -hmm. that's what we did. And we said, you know what, we're going to fucking start, um, we're going to start an agency or not even an agency. We're going to start <laughs> this, we're going to get a space, yeah. right. a cheap fucking rent. We're going to start it. And we're gonna, that's gonna be an element of what we do is this creative stuff. Uh -huh. So um, Arnaud was from three generations of footwear. So mm -hmm. his specialty was always 
you know, footwear. That was his, like... Um, it's in his blood. It was in his blood. Yeah. It was what he knew. It was, you know, his family, his father did it, his grandfather did it. And, uh, and so when we finally decided that we were going to do something, you know, new, we're going to create this space, that was an element. Arno brought in the footwear, which we didn't want to step on anybody's toes that were currently doing anything. You know, um, Futura and Stash had um, Recon. Recon and Nort, yeah. And um, Supreme, mm-hmm. Union, Union, whatever. Mm-hmm. That, that was, re- and Triple Five, I mm-hmm. think. Like, you know, there was really not that much and there was nothing. Well, these guys were on, I forgot, Eldridge. And then we ended up on Orchard Street mm-hmm. um, just because of the cheapy rent, yeah. you know. Yep. And, um, and that was it. It was, a, it was a space that we were kind of, um, you know, unsure of what it was going to be. But Nord came after... Nort came after Recon was around, Before, yeah. which is a like the shoe version of Recon. Right. Recon was not shoes. Nort was shoes. Yes. Recon was subwear. Like, yep, yeah. It was stash and future yeah. and first, blue. first acronym account. That was it. It was just <laughs> like these guys doing um, what they did fashion wise. Um, why did you guys decide to open a storefront ground level office? Whereas you could have just rented a room in a building. You skipped over the name. How'd you get the name? Okay, yeah. That's a good question, too. Let's that, go to that that's first. That's not even a... That, the name actually <laughs> uh-huh. was like we had so much conversation and mm-hmm. fucking trying to figure out. And uh, fuck, man. I don't even really... Rem- I don't have a story about the name other than that the initial name when we started was Artificial Life. Okay. And, and that was kind of where it was based upon. And mm-hmm. then when it started becoming like time to figure out like signage and like it was so fucking long that it got shortened down to a life. But, um, is that the story you heard? <laughs> That's the story I remember, but I remember it being like, I was told, I think either by our no or whatever. That was like, Tony was like, we were around a round table and everyone was like, we got to come up with something or something fucking smoking weed or something. And it was like, a life. That's what it's going to be, and that and that was it. Yeah, like, whatever. It was like a very long process, <laughs> but you know, at the end of the day, it was something that like wasn't a real kind of like, you know, didn't really mean anything mm-hmm. in the, in actuality. But to us, it was like the a life. It was like the good shit, the top. Yeah. Of the right, right. That was it. Okay, so why a ground floor store? That really just happened. Um, you know, we were looking for space and ended up in the Lower East Side, which at the time was just like the cheapest thing. Cheap. Right? Yeah. And it was like, we didn't know what we were doing. We had nobody, you know, mm-hmm. giving us any, you know, tips or any, any of that. Tony's pops had um, a, a pizzeria. So he, you know, had had a, a kind of retail experience, you know. So right. he, he helped of. us actually, you know, when we, when we found the actual spot. Um, he helped kind of just like, you know, we demoed the thing or we did everything really just mm-hmm. on our own, but he was like there to help with the, um, you know, all the cabinetry and the flooring and all this and that. Do you remember financially, like how much yeah. you guys saved up to quit Sportswear International? Yeah, every, everybody put in $15,000. Okay. Four <laughs> people. It's amazing. Four times 15 and that budget was for rent. Mm-hmm. To build out the store, to buy inventory, mm-hmm. and 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 <laughs> just that today. Can, it's crazy, you know everything. Computers and get just get the place running. And 
pay yourself, which probably didn't happen. Didn't didn't last. No. <laughs> so we weren't really paying ourselves. But so this is the the history of a life is like so part of it was a store, right? Part of it had product that we didn't have any accounts. I went to Japan first mm -hmm. time in my life with my boy that worked FedEx. We fucking he was like, you want to go to Japan? I was like, okay. You know he put a backpack, I put a backpack and we went to Japan not knowing anybody mm -hmm. and didn't speak, you know, it was like fucking lost. That was yeah. my first culture shock when I went to Japan uh -huh. the first time. And I had $3,000, I believe, was my budget to go shop. And bring back to New York to and sell. And bring back. Okay. So that was really it. So I went, you know, and brought a bunch of crazy shit that I found in Japan that, mm -hmm. you know, I've always been into. So some of it was you know, these Domakin dolls and shit that I hadn't really seen, yeah. you know, and just kind of brought shit back. And um, that was one element of the store was this stuff that nobody had really seen mm -hmm. from a different, you know, country. Yeah. And um, um, so we didn't have a salary, but we had the store, which was full of this crazy product. Not only that kind of shit, art supplies, footwear, um, weirdy shit mm -hmm. and then on the top you know the second level of the floor was the creative agency yeah and that was what allowed a life to happen mm -hmm. basically so we were doing you know creative work that was generating money yeah while we were learning and understanding retail, retail and branding yeah, yeah. What was the first, do you remember the first client that paid you money as A-Life? The first client I think was, um, I want to say it was L Magazine launched a girls publication. I mm -hmm. think it was L Girls or something like that. And so we were doing work for that kind of shit. Oh. You know, nothing that was really, um, you know, the money was good and yeah. the money allowed us to like do what we were doing. Um, but that was, you know, our first lesson of, you know, we had contracts and this and that. And uh, something happened down the road, maybe like, you know, three or four issues in. And they were like, uh, you know, we had like maybe signed up for like a year or something contract. And they were like, ah, you know what, we're, we're not, we're breaking the contract. And we were like, you can't break the contract. We have a contract. They were mm -hmm. like, fuck you, you know, and mm -hmm. we were like, have no money. And that, that was our first real lesson when it was like, if you don't have money to fight, a contract means nothing. Yeah, it means nothing. nothing. And and that was really like our first lesson of like getting fucked, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and um but yeah. it was great. But you know, so that's the kind of odd jobs and shit like that. But mass appeal was the first one of our first gigs and it wasn't for money. It might have been for a tiny bit of money, I forgot, <laughs> but it was really just for us to create to control mm -hmm. the content of the magazine and we gave ourselves the back page spread which uh -huh. was our advertisement but really it was bringing all of the content because at the time there was no instagram there was yeah. no social media there you was were no, designing the whole we magazine? were we were designing the magazine for for almost nothing for nothing because <laughs> the magazine was not a magazine it was a stapled together graffiti rag oh was it Yes. But you designed it even when it was really nice too. No, we when we started designing it is when we started turning it into a magazine. Okay, okay. Really. It start it was really just a staple together. It was like a zine. zine. Yeah. And um and that was it. You know, it the real beauty of it is those ten or however many issues we did was that was the original A Life 
content from the people yeah. to the, you know, it was all people surrounding us that we were somehow involved with. Yeah. So that was like the newsletter Word. before the before the internet. Those are good days, yeah. good times. Um, I want to remark on two memories that I have of A-Life, and maybe this will spur some like memories for you too. One of them is um, the first time I ever saw the concept of a Nike Tier Zero. Okay, so you know what that is, but Nike Tier Zero existed in a very organic form prior to the term of this distribution channel, where I assume somebody would identify a shop like A-Life and put interesting product in. I remember when I saw the Wovens, the Nike Air Woven for the first time was in your store, and I was blown away that this fucking thing in the cut of Orchard Street had like this most innovative Nike. And me, because I'm sort of like a brand whore guy, I was trying to connect the dots of like, why would Nike go so deep into the cut of NYC to give this one shop this most innovative, futuristic looking shoe? Yeah. Do you remember the story of, like, I want to know how Nike gave you the air The story was, so A-Life uh, was it was it was early on, you know, and and a life had started to bubble because of the content of the shop, because it was, you know, another element. So just to break down the elements, it was footwear was one of the focal points of a life from the get go. Art was one of the focal points from the get go because even before we opened the doors of a life, I had called a meeting between all boroughs of graffiti people that while we were in construction, not open yet. So we probably had about 50 people, you know, 50 writers that were, it was an open call. It was like, you know, graffiti is a fucking hard thing to play with because it's a lot of drama and people fucking don't like people. Clicks and shit, yeah. The invitation was everybody come. It was in the Lower East Side and that was kind of like fair game for everybody to come to. You know, it was like, there is crews from from the LES, but it was like everybody, you know, yeah. came. So it was Brooklyn, Bronx kids, Queens, um, you know, Long Island, any anywhere around. And the conversation was that anybody that had anything of interest, whether it was furniture, whether it was somebody making ink in their closet at home, like mm-hmm. KR, whether it was, you know, Espo and Reese fucking making you know this weird shit it was just an open call to anybody that was kind of like down to put shit in the public Mm -hmm. and so um so the initial a life when we first opened the doors we had a big piece on the wall that was 360 canvases and it was tags of all different people so Mm -hmm. we had that element from jump which was like Instant gallery element. So there was gallery, there was creative agency, there was store. And at the time, there was none of this shit happening, Mm -hmm. really. It was like, you're going to go to a store, you know? You're not going to walk into a place and then all of a sudden you see art supplies, you see fucking inks and industrial markers that people didn't know what the fuck it was. There was, you know, Marsh Ink, which is really just industrial shit that that people were buying just for the packaging because it looked nice, Mm -hmm. you know? So there was like this weird mix of product and content happening in this space and it started to bubble and little by little people were coming you know brands such as adidas such as nike 
we're starting to send uh-huh. people mm-hmm. to employees, like they're, st- they're designers and stuff, right? Whoever they were, they were like, you know, 10 people from Nike at yeah. a clip, you know, and they would come with little notebooks and they would be looking in the showcases and writing shit down and looking on the wall and writing notes. And, mm-hmm. and this would happen a lot. Mm-hmm. And no talk back and forth. No, oh, hi, we're from Nike. You know, no, it's just taking right. from, the, from what the culture, mm-hmm. taking from what was happening and trying to Package figure it, it out. Yeah, yeah. And so at one point, Arno basically was like, fuck you, get out of the store and don't come back <laughs> until you have something that you want to talk about. Uh-huh. And that was the catalyst that brought Nike back. It was somebody big from Wyden and somebody big from Nike came with a little duffel bag mm-hmm. and they said, can we talk? And we said, yeah, definitely, you know, let's... And there was a guy named Drew Greer, which mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, OG. a catalyst to yeah. early Nike shit. He's the one that made the, the Wu-Tang Dunk happen. He was like the beginning of Nike's co-branding. Uh-huh. And so uh, he was part of this. But, they, you know, they came upstairs with this little black bag and they said, we want to show you something. And they put it on the table and they opened it up and they pull out this um, air woven but we didn't know what the fuck it was. It was a sneaker woven. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, this, we just learned this, uh, you know, we went to Vietnam and we sat with the, you know, the, cult, the, the, the tribal people that make these shoes out of reeds of, you know, grass. And we took this and we came up with this sneaker and it's called the Air Woven. And we were like, holy fuck, like that's dope. Mm-hmm. Like the sneaker just looked yeah. like nothing we had seen, nope. you know? And we were selling footwear and we were selling weird footwear. We were selling, you know, Camper. Camper mm-hmm. and brands that were like uh, trickers, like we, a weird mix, like, you know, yeah. of, of classic and of um, like kind of contemporary shit, but for young men, you know? Mm-hmm. So we saw this and we were like, wow, that's bugged out. And Nike was like, you know, okay. We have 48 pairs or I, it was like 48 pairs mm-hmm. or 64 pairs or some shit, some real small amount. They're like, we want to launch this with you guys and see how it does. You know, we just want you guys to have this yeah. and sell it and see what happens, introduce it. And so um, we took it. Thank you. You know, thank you, Nike. Like, let's see what happens. We took the shoe and un, un, un you know, nobody knows this other than other than insiders is that you probably don't even know. Do this you have shit. it, Airwoven? Yeah. Do you have the first ones? Black and white from A Life. From A Life. I think I bought them at A Life, but let's. Okay. What do you say? say? Well, the first, all of the first pairs of Airwovens that we took, we gave the shoes to Espo. I don't know if it was Espo and Reese. Definitely Espo uh-huh. and. Every one of the insoles got taken out, and Espo has fucking artwork on every pair of the first air wovens. Right? So whoever has the first air under wovens, the insole, yep, take no the insole knows. out. And we never told anybody this or nothing. So whoever has the first pairs of air wovens from a life can look on the insoles. And I've and twenty years later, I've never seen fucking anything pop up anywhere because they don't even know because they don't know people probably got rid of them at this point yeah they're probably gone but so that was a a little twist that we had so espo did all of them we put them back (laughs) and we sold them and basically 
that was the first time that we saw the interest of people lining up outside mm-hmm. for a product. And I don't know how these people knew mm-hmm. that we had it, but it was like, you know, word on the street, yeah. whatever. And they were gone very quick. And that was, that was the beginning of our relationship with Nike amongst many other mm-hmm. brands yeah. that we became this kind of test platform. You know, so from that, you know, air woven, that happened numerous times. Then it was fucking foam posit clogs. Then it was, mm. you know, these fucking Nike police boots with, with flashlights in them. <laughs> it was like just test product yeah, yeah. that we were just getting laced and... and um, Giving to you for free. Yeah, and just, yeah. you know, and, and seeding, yeah. you know, putting out there. You get, just, you get the sales of the shoes in exchange. They get the intel. They get the intel yeah. and they get the, you know, they get the hype of being part right. of this, this thing. You know what I love about this is that like nowadays you have Stadium Goods, StockX, Tier Zero is like a Nike Sportswear is like a billion dollar organization of itself, right? Yeah. But what I love is that you know you mentioned Drew Greer and stuff like this started out as two people going up to your office with a duffel bag yeah. of shoes. Yeah. And this was before the sneaker craze. Drew yeah. was in here the other day. Was talking really? About, yeah. 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 He was in here the other day talking about how like these dudes don't know how the Wu Tang shit came out. He'd be another good. Do the interview, but yeah. mad stories. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Y'all can send thank you cards over to A-Life for starting the hype shit from day one. If you didn't know before, now you know, straight from the horse's mouth. A-Life is truly one of the originators. It's important to hear their story because it not only opens up a window into a very special time, to when sneaker craves growing and today's streetwear was really just shaping but it shows the behind the scenes of how it all really began it wasn't normal for there to be major release cues there wasn't a million dollar budget or a celebrity cosign there were no bots or online raffles even today's prototypical artist stamp of approval was just an easter egg for them that woven story blows my mind like many of the great brands we hear from on business of hype a life came from a need the need to own their work and their own ideas, a need to really maximize the creativity they have and the potential that they could do with it. They didn't set out to create a subculture for the sake of a marketing campaign. They were the subculture. This was all purely organic, not stifled by big teams and bureaucracy. And most importantly, it was new, totally undefined and non-existent before them. Only a small handful of key heads were trying to figure it all out and bouncing ideas off each other. That's what the culture was all about. A lot of what is done now can be attributed to A-Life's experience with these Tier Zero drops. Although we may now be on version 20.0 of footwear and retail, they laid the foundation. Show me a store who doesn't have a piece of A-Life DNA in them. Also, for those of you who have those original air wovens from A-Life, flip those insoles over and show me what you find. I need to see this for myself. Can I say the other anecdotal story yeah. that I remember? Levi's. Oh. The Levi's collaboration that you guys did and the launch event and the different colors of the denim and then changing the label and all that shit. Like, that to me back then as a fan was 2004. like... So it's, it's sad because now it's like step and repeat. It's terrible. But back then it was like mind blown over and over again. Well, it's really great because that, you know, so that is a big, you know, part of A-Life is like 
we like to play with brands that have relevance to us. Mm-hmm. Not because they're fucking trending, mm-hmm. not because they're on every social media site. You know, back then, I grew up wearing Levi's 501s. Mm-hmm. Um, us, that was the first time Levi's America ever put another brand's name on their brand yeah. ever. Yeah. So since then there's been of course. you know, it's been murdered. This whole game, this <laughs> whole murdered, yeah. this whole game is dead. Uh-huh. I mean, people are trying, but that's the great thing is right now, like I still love what we do because like you gotta evolve and mm-hmm. and and mix it up. So for us, the brands that we work with even now, they're not culturally, they're not um trend worthy. It's very hard for mm-hmm retailers to take the stuff that we're making and understand you know lee jeans for example is something that we're messing with now very familiar very similar to levi's yeah. back then but lee jeans when i was growing up in new york mm-hmm. as a b-boy break dancer or whatever yeah Lee jeans was what people wore. You'd go to the fucking Army and Navy store. They had a whole wall of every color, pinstripes, like, you know, and this was part of your outfit growing Mm up. Right. You know, and that was my first recollection of when I started to care about what I wore. It was, I needed Lee. Yeah. And so we approached Lee almost two years ago or whatever, and we're like, can we talk about doing something? And they were like, uh... Yeah, you know, and mm-hmm. they're like, it's just, it's been like, you know, pulling, it's, it's been <laughs> such a crazy project. It's like, I went to Kansas City and dug through fucking two floors of a fucking warehouse to find the 80s shit because mm-hmm. they weren't even, they don't you know, know what they got. They were yeah. like, you know, so just the whole experience of like, and it's only because it's personal to us you know it's like i want to do this it's not and so it's very hard you know it means stuff to us and it means stuff to our core Mm -hmm. people you know outside of that it's like these retailers will look at it and say lee no you could get lee in fucking walmart or wherever Mm -hmm. like it has no you know right it's not hot it's very hard you know and it's kind of that's kind of been the history of what we've done a lot of the products that we touch it's been a little bit, you know, b- off, like before yeah. the curve, right? You know, and then Trey, when did you join? I came in two thousand five. Okay, so like November, literally, like uh, I remember spending probably like a month there, and then the blackout happened. Uh-huh. Yeah, the blackout. I think yeah. no, actually, no. It was a teacher strike. No, uh, the MTA strike. Mm-hmm. The MTA strike happened. Tony and I uh, took a walked over the bridge together, and then literally the next day he left the company um and that was i had like a month to work with tony and that was it so i came on essentially i used to work for russell simmons doing like footwear marketing you know going around and so i was able to like meet like g and s and from pata and the guys from you know Soulbox hickmick and like mm-hmm. magdi at, at slamming kicks and you know like met all these dudes like doing the fat farm stuff like trying to push like the fat classic they had like a moment in time yeah and then he sold uh he sold fat farm to kelwood in 04 and it, it just wasn't fun and I was going to like leave and do a sneaker store and um, my my wife uh, girlfriend at the time was working at at Echo mm-hmm. and knew this dude Matt Fontana was mm-hmm. a dude that fucking we can't stand or I, I'm over it now but whatever <laughs> and, yeah. um, and he, he, he brought me into the mix like he was on board at, at A-Life mm-hmm. um, he left Seth uh, Gersberg and Mark Echo came on board to A-Life to kind of like 
whatever help like build it and grow from a business angle and then they needed somebody on the sneaker side so i came on basically to focus on ribbon and club and then from there evolved i think demanding had just left so she to go to flight club and I oh, came man, on. I don't remember Demaney being part of Alive. So this, so like, that's crazy. Just yeah. to backtrack yeah. a minute, just so when we first sold the Airwoven, that first initial line of people is that day is the day that we said we are going to open up a boutique sneaker store. Really? Yeah. And so that that's was when you made the decision to open Rivington Club. That was two thousand. Wow. So that's when. Um, and then when did Rivington Club open? Two thousand one. Okay. So that was before there was any of this shit. You know, that was like really the jump start of <laughs> the whole sneaker craze. Yeah. And the Rivington, you know, back then was that, that was it. It was like mm-hmm. this limited product, but then it was that eclectic, you know. And elevated to a new level. Yeah. I mean, but, if, you're, if you're listening to this and you don't know what we're talking about, I suggest you Google image search the original A-Life store on Orchard because wow. even to this day, it's like... That's a beautiful fucking space, you know? And then, of course, I think Rivington Club, a lot of people have seen that on a mood board somewhere. Absolutely. You know, because yeah. that definitely, like... Bodega definitely saw it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jay. Shout out, Jay. But that's crazy. So, Domaney was there. So, Domaney actually was one of the um, employees at um, Rivington Club. David you know? Z first. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, these are just kids, kids. that were interested yeah. in fo- in sneakers, pre- particularly and yep. uh you know and then the whole fucking sneaker uh craze happened and, yeah you know but Demaney, yeah Demaney was with us uh for a good amount of time uh, were you there when Demaney was there no I, right I literally after? it was like you know it was a mess and then sneaker john was there and then and then um i came on but like i mean just you know us being here now and this talk like it was you know funny story but like when i came on we knew kevin ma i knew kevin and david and literally all these different guys were on like these blogs and like literally the way we disseminate information was just like emailing, you yeah. know, and then we've got on the Nike. When I came in the store, the store was like essentially like a little bit chaotic. It was a mess. Like the inventory was crazy, mm-hmm. you know, um, product wasn't flowing right. And like, it was just like the relationship with Nike to like get yeah. back on track to like, you know, like let us know, flow things through. And, you know, we kind of like turning stuff out we're doing things. But then, you know, we were like literally like disseminating information over to like Kevin, who was like the direct point of contact, right? Or like David at Hi-Sabai, mm-hmm. whatever. And um, uh, what was it Gavin Tom? Ga- Gavin, right? Was like showing Gavin us through Thomas. all yeah. this product at yep. fucking Nike. And, you know, we were like, and, and definitely something I shouldn't have done, but we took this, this product and like I, I emailed it to, to Kevin. <laughs> right and like you know shouldn't have done it whatever i think we got it and ignore it we're uh-huh. getting it or maybe even you guys got it i don't even remember who got it right uh-huh. but like it was like two stores that got it yeah. right and then like do you remember which shoe you're talking about right now i can't remember it was like definitely like probably an air force one or something uh-huh. like crazy whatever this is definitely like oh six yeah and this was like when when they would post any like anything like i remember sometime we changed our carpet to purple they posted it yeah you know? <laughs> and it was just like here yeah. so then we I, I sent them this stuff and then um they put it up and I get a call from Gavin. He's like, hey, I'm not accusing you of anything, but just want to kind of like, I don't know <laughs> if you could possibly see about like, getting in trouble, but like, we only showed this thing to two people. And, <laughs> right. it, you know, they said it wasn't them. So I was like, huh, weird. Like, let me make a call, you know, whatever. And then hit up Kev and Kevin, and he's like, I'll take it down. Mm-hmm. Right. And then like Gavin hit me up like an hour later, like, dude, I don't know how that happened. I'm not going to ask any questions, but it's down. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, oh, by the way, 
um, do you have his email? Right. And uh-huh. like, and like, I like introduced the two of them. Yeah. I'm not going to take credit for like introducing Gavin and Nike to Hypebeast or whatever, but like, you know, I introduced no, Kevin but that, it, it and It kind of goes to show how crazy this world. They didn't know. They just had no, no like, ins. Nike didn't know how to get through. Like it was <laughs> nothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like, it was crazy. And then, you know, I don't even know if people knew that he was in, it, it wasn't, I think at the time maybe he wasn't, he was in Vancouver operating. Mm-hmm. Yes. And not in here. So it was still yeah. like time zone was like kind of, Right. That worked in a way. And then, but whatever. Yeah. So it was, it was that. And then. Wait, but so you just admitted to the person who leaked it. I definitely did. I definitely <laughs> leaked it. Yeah. But I was, no, I mean, yeah. back then it was, it was like. I no, think the statute of limitations over. You're fine yeah. now. Yeah. yeah <laughs> we're not, we don't, I mean, we don't even have a Nike account. So whatever. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was no rules back then mm-hmm. really the same. Like we literally like great marketing product with Sarah from Colette, like traded shoes with G from Pata. Like we're buying stuff. And like, there was no segmentation. The, the product was much better. Right. Like I yeah. could like. Like G couldn't sell Jordans, right? Mm-hmm. Like Pot, they could, you know. So I'm like, give me all 200 of of your Jordan fours. Yeah. Here's 200 of these Air Max that yeah, I don't exactly. need. Right? Yeah. We're just like, and it worked. And we'd pay right. extra money. The, the freight didn't matter. Like yeah. it wasn't at this whole 300 dollars shit. It was like we could sell 200 dollars of a mm-hmm. fucking shoe at like 20 dollars over retail. And yeah. it was like, no, the guys weren't really like they knew the re- the, the 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 um sales guys, and it mm-hmm. wasn't like don't do it. Yeah. The only stickle they had, which was which was don't put it online, right? Mm-hmm. And like. Back then, we were like killing it. We didn't give a fuck about online, really. And yeah, then back then, yeah, it started to turn to a point where like the only people, and and you know they're my friends, Peter and Eric, but like the only people that were allowed, they were allowed early mm-hmm. to have an online store, yeah. right? They got, sneakers think, and stuff. You're sneakers and stuff. Yeah. yeah, sorry. So they got an online store probably in like I want to say 2006 or seven, mm-hmm. right? And they they got they got the okay to have the store, and they had their struggles like all of us did, right? We're like, but the online store enabled them to ship. Right, yeah. www dot right, so yep. they can go everywhere worldwide, and next thing you know, like, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. They, like growth and like we, no one ever in America could get the okay to sell online. Sell online. Yeah. So like they had the competitive advantage, mm-hmm. like beyond everyone, right. right? And then like the right things, and like so you know, and they got them now. nine stores around the world, right? right. So like. Whoever in Nike Sweden gave the okay yeah. globally to do it. I think it helped that they were so remote. Like they weren't New York, LA, Tokyo, yeah. Paris. Yeah, like, oh, absolutely. Sweden. And back then the internet wasn't worldwide web necessarily. It was like, no. oh yeah, you want to make it convenient for your Swedish customers? Right. That's right. It yeah, doesn't yeah, hurt, yeah. you know. But they weren't only selling, yeah. you know, whatever. But like shut up. But out you to know them. that that insight that you said where it's like, you know, Jordans weren't moving in Pata, Air Maxes weren't moving here. Unbeknownst to Nike, that is information that like you were kind of like telling them right. in on the low, you weren't putting it into report. But they could see, like, oh wow, Jordans move heavy in Harlem and in New York, but not in Europe. Like, right. now next year, let's you know flip the script on it. You right. know what I mean? Like, right. so that information is priceless. And then too, like back then, we were you know pick their brains on everything. I mean, Udi would you know? I remember they had meetings. We'd come up and we'd sit with like Julian when he was there. Khan mm-hmm. would like you know they'd pick our brains about what's working, what's not. And we'd sit down and we you know because we needed to get fed. Like that was yeah big money. I yep. mean you know like so then. A lot of times it was often, t- it was like, we're going to give this to Nord or Reed Space to get this time or, and mm-hmm. we were all there, yeah. right? Like it was, I mean, it was beautiful because like back then everybody was there. It was like the guys that, not the guys that mattered, but whatever, it was A-Life Ribbon and Club. So people do the circuit, they yep. go to Nord, mm-hmm. they come over to, to you mm-hmm. and then they, and then, you know, the, you go Stussy was further, further yep. west and Union. Supreme was further yeah. west, Union. And Union back then wasn't really crushing it with sneakers. Like mostly, like they'd have the odd court force or yep. whatever. But like, but like, I think sneakers then was mostly East, in my opinion. Like, yeah. and then you had Broadway, yep. right? But like, which is the mainstream stuff, yeah. Right, and Transit. that was like it didn't mean anything. Yeah. And then active and then, warehouse, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but whatever it was and then it you know game changed but like i remember we used to order like 200 pairs of air force one whites and like mm. just sell them in a month and a half mm-hmm. not even like shipping them out in boxes like dudes would just be like i need another pair i need another pair but like yeah you can only sell 200 pairs of like a yeezy today you know uh-huh. or a virgil off-white but like you're it's not true. selling like a blazer just right. regular today no one is no, yeah it's not happening A-Life Rivington Club was a game changer on its own. It may seem like a no-brainer today, but the approach in visual merchandising to flip the perception of sneakers on its head to become high-end and luxury was revolutionary. And look where we are today. And as for Trey, what an interesting time for him to start, because that's when the sneaker industry really started to take shape. Very important shops were open at the moment, and these marquee stores around the world we're in communication and trading stock back and forth. You would never catch that happening today. But again, this just shows how much this was all new to everyone. What's wild to hear is how much A-Life was more than just a store. But it makes total sense. I mean, they started as a creative studio in the beginning, a purveyor of goods, and a holder of very valuable and unique customer information. It really was A-Life that everyone wanted to learn about. While many follow the industry today, A-Life was without a doubt helping to shape it. They carved themselves out a very unique position during a time when very few influential shops were around. I remember first visiting the Rivington Club and thinking that this was like the new nightclub. First, you had to be buzzed into the store, and sometimes you had to wait a long time to finally gain access. Then once inside, you were transported to another time. I gotta say, intimidation was definitely a factor in the experience. You were looking at higher-than-thou product in a higher-than-thou retail environment. Then, the courtyard in the back of the store was where the insane shit would go down. Concerts, shows, screenings, events. I remember standing there one time for a Just Blaze event, looking up at the LES sky above and thinking, man, what a time to be alive. Thank you, A-Life. I want to get into a question that I don't know if you feel okay talking about, but we're sitting in the room with just two people right now. You mentioned there were four partners. So there was eventually a point where Tony left, Arnaud left, and Tammy left. Can you talk about how founders leave the thing that they founded? Like, and I'm, maybe each story is a little bit different, but can you recount like when yeah. the divorce happened it's actually funny because how oh, is it funny okay <laughs> i mean well you know it's just like you know all of this stuff you don't plan for it you know it's oh. basically nobody really telling you it's really learning it all from experience mm-hmm. any of the shit that we've done so tammy and arno were married you know tammy was like fuck this life you know <laughs> it's too crazy it's yeah. like it's a very stressful life, like having yes. your own business and trying to survive and feed, you know. And at a certain point, relatively, you know, early on, I, I, I want to say probably around 2003, mm. 2002, 2003, Tammy was like, I'm done. Mm-hmm. And I'm done with A Life or I'm done also with Arno? I'm done. Everything. I'm leaving and- America. Yeah. Oh shit. Yeah. So it was okay. just like you know she eject. She hit the eject button. It was just totally. on and um and and mm-hmm. um, Tammy was like, I have um, 
I have uh, somebody that's buying my shares of the company. Interesting. And I was like, cool. You know, we were like, you have a new partner. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> our new partner was Demaney. She got rid of her shares to Demaney, and that was the beginning of. Demaney was an employee at the time, right? Yes. But without your knowledge, no. she sold the shares to an employee. Yeah. <laughs> crazy shit. Wow. So it's crazy, but you know what? This is fucking a bunch of kids doing, a getting deal. into fucking yeah. business. And like, you know what? Power to Tammy because she made some fucking money. Yeah. You know what? Right. Good for her. So at the time, you know. And Demaney's not a bad partner. Demaney was good. Demaney yeah. was doing his thing, like fucking hustling and Demaney, you know. Every, as long as you're a hustler out here, right. you're okay, you right, know. Right. So that yeah. was, but that was our first um, introduction <laughs> to partnership and, mm-hmm. and kind of, you know. Yeah. All of you made it off of Orchard to Rivington Club, correct? Together. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. it was, so Tammy left after Rivington Club opened. Who was the next to go? Um, the next to go Tony. was Tony. Uh-huh. And Tony. what was the reason for that? Tony had recently had a kid. And, you know, this game, you're constantly hunting for your food, mm-hmm. you know, basically like. Yeah. If this you rest, was, you don't eat. This was before, you know, Supreme was making multi-millions and, mm-hmm. you know, everybody was going nuts. This was like early on when, you know, you had to work hard. We had four partners that were splitting anything. So like um, Tony had a kid and Tony just was like, yo, this shit is serious right now. I'm fucking scared. I need to go secure like some work. Yeah. You know? So that was, that was the next one was Tony was just like, I have to, I have to like try to figure my life out. And, okay. and this independent, you know, crazy fucking life that we're living is mm-hmm. just, is just hard. And so it's you are no, you're there now. But you're not. I'm not there. I'm not in the. I'm not in the picture. No, I, was, I mean, yeah. Tony left. I was in the picture. Yeah. So you just got there. Tony left in '05. I want to say we have to check with him, but I'm pretty sure '05. I got there in like, basically like I remember it being like a craze, like early November, and then it was like Christmas and sales were crazy and whatever. Okay. So yeah. whenever so that, there. whenever the MTA strike was, uh-huh. it was like right in right in that zone. And then Demaney's a partner. Okay. Yeah. Demaney's and- gone in '05. Four. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Demani left as quick as he came. He left in 04 to go secretly do Flight Club. Flight Club. Flight Club, yeah. Yeah. Flight right. Club started then. Yeah. So he saw money in the resale. Yeah. That I was mean, they was doing Jesus it there. Yeah. 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 Okay. So wait, I just want to know how did Demani get rid of his shares, or he just walked? Demani, um, I'm fucking trying to think, bro. I'm like, you <laughs> pushed him to Ribbon and Club. He what? You pushed. He was. He ended up being Ribbon Club only. Yeah. And uh-huh. like okay. focus on Ribbon and Club. The yeah. business of A-Life Rivington Club, right. not A-Life separate, the whole thing. Two yeah. separate companies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then Ribbon and Club, I think Demani, I think, I mean, Demani had talked whatever all the time. He just left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Demani, meanwhile, like was like, he's a hustler, but like <laughs> buy, it, it was reselling today, right? So he'd buy shoes at $100. Yes. And like he'd buy them at the store and then he's like, take I was about to his, ask that question. He'd take yeah. them on his site and yeah. fucking sell them for so he was doing 200 yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like, this was, it was the like the beginning of all this shit. <laughs> yeah. right, right. That was it. Yeah. And to you guys, you're like, I mean, they're selling. I don't yeah. care if they sell to him yeah. and he's flipping yeah. them. But, but they, they, had, they had no interest in sneakers at all, right? Like the sneakers, like what the world loves today and like everyone yeah. geeks out over, there was no fascination or interest mm-hmm. in any of that really mm-hmm. on their side. Yeah, I mean, right. what it turned into was like, you know, not what it initially was, you know, when yeah. we first started the shit. It's just like 
I mean, it's great what it what it is now. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you know, it's the defining. It's really what's happening. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like kind of dead too. It's like to me, it's well, flat because it's, you're a it's retailer. Conversation. Mm-hmm. But whatever. Okay, so uh, continue if you can. I Are mean, you and you and Arno now. Me and Arno. So then we started to um, look for uh, cash, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, a customer basically came in the store and was like, "How do you, how do you do? I'm from Canada." Um, I got a lot of money and I'm interested in like, you know, in, it wasn't partnering, but it was like, I'm interested in, in a life. Like and franchising? Kind yeah, of? Kind like of. opening an a life yeah, in Vancouver. Canada. Yeah. And that's how kind of that conversation started. And, um, he became a partner also. Okay. Um, it was really about survival mm. and it was like, um, getting the money however we could get it. Yeah. To maintain, yeah, you know, keep the lights on. Literally. To maintain our brand, even though at times it was very, you know, flatline. Like, I mean, the whole game has gone up and down, and t-shirt brands, I, I slew of them, you mm-hmm. know, and then the economy tanked, and they're all gone. Other yeah. than the cream of the crop, it's like, you know, just the the longevity and being able to like navigate you know, how by any means necessary to yeah. keep shit going right. is basically what I'm still doing here is yeah. basically because it's been... We had nine lives for sure. It's, it's incredible get, that y'all still... Get rich or, I, or here. get I think, the fuck I, out, yeah. you know? I mean, for the same thing, for like people listening to this and like being in business, well, we had really no clue. Mm-hmm. Really. And I think that Streetwear wasn't like today, if we had the momentum like now that we had then... yeah. Like people would have been like, here's ten mil, let's go, mm-hmm. you know, like whatever. But like, yeah. or whatever. Here's here's three million dollars. Let's let's like rock out, mm-hmm. and like an engine would be put behind us to get going. But like back then, it was Fat Farm and Echo and yeah. you know whatever. Like the, the you know hundreds or something. Yeah. Like, yeah, like it wasn't like no one was. A life was like, ah, eh, it's cool, but you can't put that shit in Macy's. Like mm-hmm. you can't get that shit to fucking tr- you know transit and you know yeah. whatever, right? So like the guys weren't there for the the money. So like. You know, we had to try to get creative with like where to get money. Sometimes it was fucking so a manufacturing deal. Like you know, we got we partnered with CYC, Craig Atkinson, and those guys mm-hmm. on a manufacturing relationship. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, every relationship yeah. that we got into was just like a shit scenario, right? So mm-hmm. like we had to buy our way out of that. So that cost us more money. We we're in it for like eighteen months, two two years, and next thing we're buying our way out of the fucking contract. Yeah, it was nightmare. A lot, it was a lot of mistakes made, but it was really all to further the brand really mm-hmm. you know kick the can down the road that's mm-hmm. it so how many i mean of those bad deals did you guys probably have? three the biggest the biggest bad deal in detriment to the business really was like a deal that we signed with our with our chart like our um, footwear partner uh-huh. and japan and that was really the one that like hurt the most in my opinion because like yeah yeah because we did i mean it was a it was a deal signed in perpetuity mm. so like you're like, still in it well, now we finally spent enough money and whatever just out of it. Wow! But like he he didn't want to let us out. So like, is this a Japanese person? Like, company? yeah, yeah, he's Japanese. Uh, he's from Japan, but he was also doing the footwear, yeah. right? So he was doing the footwear, and then that was cool. Then we took on the idea to like one of the big things that hits was like right around two thousand eight. We took on the the idea that we're going to be the distributors for Egg Life Footwear in the U.S. Even though he was a licensee, he could have done it. 
we want to kind of like control the distribution flow, whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't us. It was like another individual was like running the business. And long story short, we couldn't, this was like basically right around the time of the, cra- the crash, yeah. the global oh, crisis. Wait, yep. And everybody like Nike was calling their credit, mm-hmm. like, you know, to us, like we need our money. Like we, we had, we had like $600,000 on credit. Nike didn't give a fuck. Like we weren't paying attention. Like it didn't yeah. matter. You right. know, like they're like, oh, you're paying your, your bill. And then we, at the same time, we didn't know who to go and we had no like accounts receivable department. We didn't know how to go collect money. It was mm-hmm. like literally like, hey, what's up, bro? Can you pay this yeah. week? Or, you know, oh, I got you next week. And I was like, oh, he said he's got us next week. And it was like. <laughs> Two months later, and like we got a million dollars out in fucking uh-huh. shoes, uh-huh. and we can't collect. And then so our forward, like we had to pay our licensee to still get paid on our royalty yeah. for the shoes. And he was like, "Can't pay my my mill. I can't pay your royalty." And like that was like you know every quarter it was like sixty seventy thousand dollars coming in in clips. Mm-hmm. It was good money. Yeah. And like so the offset right to stop. And we're like, you can't stop. We can't mm-hmm. make designs. And it was snowballed from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's been a constant, you know, uh, lesson of. Business. You know, business basically yeah. Yeah. learning the hard way. For every up, there's a down. For every amazing, groundbreaking celebration, there's a mistake that could cost everything just waiting around the corner. There can be internal conflicts and a split in partners or bad deals that progressively turn worse and even economic downturns that's beyond anyone's control. The impressive thing is that Rob and Trey went through it all. Partners with differing opinions, partners who walked out, partners who just wanted to run the brand in the ground. It's a real eye-opener to hear about because we're never privy to a lot of these conversations and what happens behind closed doors. So learn from what they went through previously for A-Life because every single instance is something that could potentially happen to you. A common theme we've heard about when it comes to business partners on this podcast is the importance of mutual understanding. It's a business, so money is a reality, but what's vital is understanding what each person brings to the table. You can't have the money and expect to run the brand if you don't have the energy and know-how of the industry and the culture or the customer base that the brand is tapped into. Nor can you run a brand with all the know-how, but with no capital or business acumen. It's really about having that balance of cash and craft. Who you want to partner with is important, but it doesn't stop there. How much creative freedom are you allowed? What is the reason to partner? What will come out of it? All areas Rob and Trey had to learn and correct on the fly. The good thing is now you have their story to help guide you and to help give you context on how things really are. I always think partnerships are like relationships. Everything looks great on the first date, right? But a true test of dedication comes when the chips are down and the shit hits the fan. Who is your true ride or die? You're still here. Still here and like, you know, have learned a lot about the industry and like, you know, there's like um, the independent people that are doing it, you know, vertical, Mm -hmm. which... There aren't many, yeah. But that's a that's one model, mm-hmm. and then there's you know the model of wholesale, which is very trend based and mm-hmm. hard to navigate. And, yeah, and, and could fall apart at any time. At any time, you know. Yeah. So I don't know if we should fast forward to where we are now. Yeah. What What are you at now? You know, our last relationship that we were in, which was a, another manufacturing relationship mm-hmm. with. Um, 
Seth. With Seth Gersberg. Okay. Um, Who was Mark Echo's partner at Echo, right? Yeah. Okay. And, and Mark Echo on the creative side, you know, we go back to when he was first beginning, you know, yeah. and Seth was the business part of that. And, uh, and you know, so f- however we ended up together, um, it, we got out of that scenario. That took us about, you know. Two years. That took us about two years to get out of that was scenario. That a, so it was a bad scenario. It was a bad scenario because a lot of times what happens is people, these people that we end up in these relationships with, see the brand name and think that they're gonna all of a sudden fucking open the faucet and fucking think that they're gonna sell it everywhere and Mm -hmm. make this ton of money and it's always done wrong Mm -hmm. and it never works how they you know plan it and they make a fucking ton of goods so it just didn't work out for him um his whole operation went haywire we thankfully you know, and with a lot of hard work and perseverance, got the fucking brand away from him. Mm-hmm. Um, and while while we were getting the brand back, you, you said know, that pretty easy. Yeah, well, <laughs> we got the brand back. Yeah. Um, we took distribution away globally from everybody, and you know, so over a two year period, we pretty much like stopped everything. Yeah, while kept the store going, while keeping little fucking bubbly shit. You know, uh-huh. no wholesale, no nothing. Nobody could really get anything other than New York. It's like hitting the reset button. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Mm-hmm. While, you know, while all this crazy shit is happening. Yeah. And basically, you know, to right now where we've been like, okay, you know, now we're talking to, you know, we brought somebody on for sales that we're targeting, you know, very specific people. So Selfridges or fucking, you know, different projects Strategic, good strategic ones, Strategic yeah. with, you know, with good retailers. Um, and it's different, you know, it's not like the good old days where you have a line sheet and you send the same shit to everybody. It's like so specific now. Yeah. I feel like it's, you know, each one of these retailers, it's almost something different I for know. each one. You got to create a line for each one. So, mad work. You know, mm-hmm. this, is the, this is the life that we, uh, that we live. A-Life, Rob, and Trey are the epitome of the saying, the strong will survive. But it's also the perseverance, self-realization, and that take-no-shit attitude that has helped them sustain such longevity. Trey said it earlier, it's like they have nine lives. I'd like to think it's a continuous work in progress, and the team has been crafting a work of art that happens to come in the form of a brand. They've seen every shift in the industry and almost every conflict with partners that's possible. And that makes it only more amazing that I'm able to sit down and talk shop with them as they do their thing today. The great thing about A-Life today is that in many ways, they're what they should have always been and what they're strongest at. A minimal take on only what's best by maximizing the true appeal and inspiration that they have, all rooted in art, graffiti, and design. There are no stockpiles of clothes and random collaborations every week, only the right amount that suggests to me that they are being mindful and methodical to how they want to operate. It's smart, it's different from what they've done, and it's setting them up for the future. In a word, it's A-Life all over again. What, what advice would you give to a kid who says like, I'm about to get a partner. What would you tell that kid? 
<laughs> Trey's just shaking his head. It's like, I mean, for me, I know, like, I had to practice and get better at being a good partner too, right? Like, just like right. communicating differently. Like, when you have a partnership, you got to be able to flow, you know, and like, yeah. and speak and, and do all those things. So, like, it's hard. Like, you got to like trust the person, and like, not everyone's going to work together, but like, honesty and, you know, the tough thing is when you're courting each other in the early moments. It always it's all, it's, it's all like a, good. It's like it's, your girlfriend. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's when you get through like the bad, you know. And then I think whatever ha- whatever happens, even with Rob and I, there's always differences of opinion, right? And then it's like one way the business has to go, decide to go away, and like which way is it going to go, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like it's going to go my way or whatever. And it's like we're going to need to go and raise this money, or we don't. We need to make. You know what? We need to decide to not make this shoe or do it, and and that's when you start to kind of get, you know, I I think like a little bit like haywire. But Mm -hmm. I think the the, one of the downsides on like having a partnership too is, you know, everybody wants to weigh in, Mm -hmm. and when there's like one person to decide what to do and where to go, it's like a little bit easier because like if everyone has opinions, like it's a long meeting, you know. A lot of the um, partnerships that we got into were because the necessity of money. So a lot of the people were money, right? Mm-hmm. right. And that's the deciding factor of a lot of things. It is business. And so <laughs> a lot of the time, you know, a lot of our, um, this is fucked up, but we would, sh- if we were in disagreement with the way that things were going, and you know a lot i've been i've been let go of from a life in the past not not needed really? because of because of the people that have you know secured we're, the, the brand yeah. and said okay we have the ip we have the branding thank you we're going to make it happen who did that well whoever it's been done <laughs> it's been done more than once you're like steve jobs but the great thing <laughs> the great thing you've been fired from a life the great thing and the power of what we do is that when something like that happens, we shut off what we do. Uh-huh. And what we do is what... Is the juice. Is the fucking DNA yeah. of the brand. So once you fucking think that you're going to do what you do, and then all of a sudden you have no cultural Love. relevance yeah. or anything Word. of worthwhile, you know, so that's cool. So we <laughs> shut you off and uh-huh. it takes at least a year for that to fucking sink in. You <laughs> know? They got nothing. So yeah. they're very long, um, you know, experiences that you have to go and find other shit to do for, and let it fucking fizzle, you know? And like yeah. our new, you know, relationship that we're in is like, you know, the best place that we've been in 20 years mm. in regards to the, the ability to go. Yeah. You know, and we're, do what you do. And now what I like to think of A-Life is, A-Life is like a Volkswagen GTI. My favorite car. With an AMG engine <laughs> under the hood. <laughs> That's kind of how it is. Uh-huh. It's like we have the means to go now. Yeah. And we're just kind of like a sleeper, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. where people from the outside are looking at, they don't really know what's happening, yeah. but like, you know. Who are your partners now? It's a manufacturing, okay. uh, you know, thing to just they want really, to remain private yeah okay just go like you nice. know footwear apparel like whatever we you know decide to uh mm-hmm. to do it's like and 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 really just like navigate together it's been a, it's been a year it's been two years since 17 it's been since 17 okay. that we've been in uh in this, in this. new relationship and it's been like you know 
structuring it. It's been yeah. slowly and gradually building to, um, you know, mm-hmm. to where we're headed. So, how does it feel to be removed from your own creation? It feels bad, of course. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, okay, what are you, what are you going to do with this? And it feels good because both times have been a failure, mm-hmm. and both times the investor had to figure out a way out. Yeah. You know, because they didn't have the means to make it work. Mm-hmm. And both times you got it back. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Cool. So so what do we have? Do you want to give a sneak preview on like what's going to happen? What is your vision of 20 and beyond? Yeah, I think like um, smart, um, meaningful relationships with retailers. Mm-hmm. Smart, reoccurring relationships with brands that like... You know, rather than these one-off co-brands and shit like that, I think it's going to be more of partnerships with these brands mm-hmm. and kind of like, you know, building that way. I think um, the brands that we are going to approach, you know, like the Crocs was kind of the beginning of our step back into the game. Yeah. Like, um, you know, that was kind of a fuck you to all the sneaker companies yep. that are dictating what's happening. Mm-hmm. And the Crocs thing was kind of like, we're, we're doing Crocs because fuck you, mm-hmm. you know who you are. Um, we're going to touch, you know, a product that most people, it's been taboo yeah. until somebody else touches it and right. says it's okay. Yep. You know, so there's a lot of this shit where like, you know, the the people that we're approaching, whether it's brands or other shit, you know, it just needs to it just it just needs to have make sense to us mm-hmm. and have some kind of meaning, you know. And you still have Rivington store as a sneaker store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is your take on the current state of sneaker culture? I, I think it's a nightmare, honestly. I think like um so we don't today we don't have Nike account, which is something we're championing constantly to kind of like, you know, have mm-hmm. conversations with the guys there about. But um, in general, like looking back since 2005 and seeing like there was actual real shoppers, right? Whether online or not, but like people cared about shoes and just having like a regular pair of Chucks or like that Adidas or that Gazelle or get the Nizza or whatever. Like people shopped. Mm-hmm. And today I think it's, it's all about like, you know, you could literally close your store on, a, on release dates and you'll be fine. Like mm-hmm. decide to open up on a release date and it doesn't matter. And, you know, we used to get guys, I remember like Quest, we did the Quest Air Force One. Mm-hmm. He was, he came in, guys, like kids would camp outside, pizza, it was peaceful, meaningful, like they get to know each other, meet, talking like, oh, I saw you on Nike talk. It was like, fine. Like yeah. guys are like knife fights now and shit. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you know, you know, one of the first times it was like a craze, it was like your drop yeah. with the first fucking pigeon. Mm-hmm. But like beyond that, there was, there was like, it was chill. It was yeah. docile. Like you could like, didn't need to get security, you yep. didn't like, you know, whatever. And now, you know, each brand has got like, maybe 10 shoes that they sell well. Mm-hmm. And then yep. like, you know, you got to go deep on those 10 shoes and hope that you get allocated enough pairs to, yeah. to do that's your numbers. That's the lifeline of your store. That's, yeah, that's yeah. it. So like for us. But then meanwhile, the brand is shoving these 90 other things down your throat. And you got to buy it. If you, you have don't, to buy if it you to don't, get the 10 good If thing, you don't yeah. play it, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, whatever. It's like a mob thing. Like if so you don't do good, it. It's a good time to fucking change up. I yeah. think, uh, you know, are so, you going to keep the sneaker store going? Well, we're thinking about, you know, the ne- the evolution of it. Mm-hmm. And just because, you know, this game is fucking played out kind of. Yeah. 
you know the formula has been figured out so it's, yeah i think the sneaker store is important i think it's just you know double down on a life really it's like you that's know, the main more shit that's the like, main concern is push the push brand. the a life a life ribbon club is is there and i think like we'd love to like have conversations and you know do mm-hmm. whatever and get nike but like i think it's all cyclical and i think it's gonna something's gonna come back yeah because if if you look at like adidas now like they're in a spot in our space that's not great you mm-hmm. know um, their collection next season isn't, you know, they, they're going to have to make some improvements and shit. Do you carry Adidas? I do, yeah, but whatever. <laughs> They'll get it, right? It's all good. Honest, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll just be an eye. Like, they know, I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. saying whatever. But they're, I'm sure by the time this comes out, like, their spring's going to look better. They'll probably, like, you know, flood their, their board with better stuff and product. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, at the same time, people are always buying shoes. It just We just have to do better with, like, letting people know to, like, buy the basics because I think that's where... Mm-hmm. that's where like everyone's going to be like yeah. better off right you know? and i think if it's a lesson like when you originally got that air woven you weren't trying to open a nike account no like you were doing your thing and they came yeah so history right. should repeat itself if you just do you yeah they'll come and, and bless yeah, you with the stuff it, yeah agreed that's it like you know this whole modern today is based upon trend which I, is it's really bad you know yeah. it's like there's a handful of people that are really doing what they do for the love of it. The mm-hmm. rest of it is like people that are following suit, you know, which yeah. is kind of like, you know, it waters the whole game down. Mm-hmm. So in one way it's great because the competition is like, high. it's high, yeah. but it's thin, you know, yes, it's meaning yeah, like it's there's, a lot not, of it. right. there's not that many people that are really like out there. There's a handful of like real people that mm-hmm. are really like doing relevant shit you know yep so a lot of noise though but yeah yeah i mean it's great we wouldn't do this shit if we didn't love it you know and uh that's it all right man this was dope thanks for the insight yeah yeah jeff staple everybody (laughs) (laughs) thanks fellas all right thank you hey thanks for listening to this trip down street culture memory lane with the duo Rob and Trey of A-Life. And thank you for bearing with the frog in my throat. As always, you can find out more about the show and listen to other shows at hypebeast.com slash radio. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I personally use Anchor FM. Also, please do me a favor and leave a rating and comment to tell us what you think of the show. Tell a friend about the show, spread the news. Everything definitely helps out a lot. You can also reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Staple. We do occasionally answer listener questions. So if you have a question, shoot it over on Twitter. The Business of Hype is created in collaboration with Bright Young Things. You can check out their work at byt.nyc. Our director is Daniel Nevetta. Our audio engineer is David Rogers-Berry. Our associate producers are Sydney Pacumpra and Christina Hung. This episode was recorded at Sibling Rivalry Studio and on location at the A-Life headquarters in New York City. I'm Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hypebeast Radio. Thank you.